Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near Death Experiences podcast. I hope you are doing well, and I hope you and your family are staying safe in this difficult time. So today I wanted to do something that was slightly outside of the usual purview of this podcast, in that I am not going to be reading a near-death experience, and I'm not going to be talking about anything that is particularly associated with death. But you may have noticed over, I don't know, several episodes that I have made frequent uh, reference to the work of the Jungian psychologist Marie-Louise von Franz. And particularly what's been interesting me over the past year or so has been the relationship between psyche and matter or spirit and matter. I mean, you could even go so far as to say it's the relation or the yeah i guess the dualism between science and religion or something like that or consciousness and the inner and outer world like there's a, a thousand different ways that you could you could set up this this binary type of situation but it's been very interesting to me and particularly because when I've often talked about near-death experiences. I, I've tried to come at it from an objective place. And because it's something that's so controversial and, and every, it means something different to every different person that you ask. You know, some people would take a very scientific, atheistic, materialistic approach to it and say that it's just a, an NDE is just a, a hallucination of the brain. Or you could talk to someone who's more religiously inclined and say that an NDE is proof of a particular uh, religion or, or denomination. Uh, I mean, it, it's a very difficult thing to talk about. And what I've wanted to do for this entire uh, podcast that I've been doing it is to take the experience as it presents itself, not to not to try and twist it in any one way or another, but to to explore the phenomena of of what this experience is. And so to do that, I have uh, fallen quite naturally into exploring the work of the psychologist Carl Jung and some of his uh, future uh, uh, students and and Jungian authors, uh, such as Marie-Louise von Franz. And, and it's been quite fascinating and very useful in order to, to take a, a profound inner experience seriously and not, and not to go off into any, you know, any of the countless directions that one could take it. And I hope that in the various times that I've talked about people's near-death experiences and, and tried to make sense of them, and analyze them to some degree in the imagery that the the methods that I've used coming from Jung and, and how he approached the unconscious of, of his patients has has translated and, and has made sense 
to uh, a presumably a wide audience of of all of you out there who have probably different feelings about death and and NDEs and all you know it's such a it's such a complicated and difficult thing to talk about for for obvious reasons and so uh, in reading this this chapter uh, from a book called Psyche and Matter by Marie Louise von Franz. Uh, the chapter itself is called Psyche and Matter in Alchemy and Modern Science. It, when I was reading it, I found it so, so fascinating and I thought it might be a useful thing to share with you all. Because what this chapter is going to do is it's going to, to kind of trace the uh, almost a psychological history of of the West, back from the Greeks up up through uh, you know the rise of Christianity to the rise of rationalism and and science into the modern day and and see what the transformations that have undergone in this relationship between well psyche and matter, or you could say science and religion. And then she also touches on a bunch of very interesting topics, which I have discussed uh, throughout the uh, past couple episodes, such as alchemy and 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 what that was, and and its history, and what they were trying to do, and their manipulations of of chemical reactions and chemical stu- substances, and the psychological meaning of that. And she also gets into some ideas about synchronicity, which we often see associated with near-death experiences. Uh, synchronicity being a meaningful coincidence of an inner and outer event. And, and then also she talks about uh, the idea of number, and I've, I've talked a little bit about number symbolism, and, and particularly in a, a few near-death experiences. But she talks about number as a possible future unifier of, of these the inner and outer world, these two realms that that when we are going to talk about such difficult <laughs> difficult things as, as an NDE that we have to grapple with. And she she also talks about perhaps some future ideas for for the yeah, the unification or bringing back together of of psyche and matter. So just to give you a brief outline of, of the things she's going to be discussing, she's essentially going to be tracing the historical roots of alchemy from its earliest beginnings in in Greek philosophy to getting mixed in with Egyptian liturgical uh, chemical processes and and mummification and certain of uh, those ideas from uh, the Middle East on through the development of Christianity onto the rise of, of the scientific method and, and rationalism into the modern day. And the whole time she's going to be focused on this relationship between the idea of matter and the, the idea of the psyche and how they have interacted with one another. And what you might notice to start out with, she's going to talk about how the, at least way back in the time of the Greeks, that they often, it seems as though they experienced their psyche out in the world, that they were, psyche and matter were united out in the world in the form of a projection. And so, you know, that's where you get things like the idea of, of nymphs 
talking to you from the from the water and, and that sort of things. These are psychological phenomena, and and so she, what she's going to do, she's going to trace the development of of this interaction between psyche and matter, and its gradual separation uh, with the rise of of science, which is you know. Science, science does not want any any emotion or any uh, psychological uh, phenomena happening in in its study of the objective world. It, it wants to strip those things away, and and so she's going to be talking about the that development and what it has meant uh, as it has continued into the modern day. And the reason I I wanted to talk about that is because we can very much see how these developments over time have have led to where we're at and in particular even in in the way we talk about death and the way we talk about a near death experience these the things that she is going to describe are very much alive today and they have not not necessarily been resolved and and towards the end of of this chapter she's going to talk about ways that perhaps we can can bring uh, psyche and matter back together in a, a cleaner way than the, than it was uh, together before. So I, I found this fascinating. I hope that that you will too, and and I look forward to to being able to discuss it with you all, and, and hopefully uh, provide us a a foundation to to better understand where we're at. And, and like I said, be able to, to improve the conversation around, around death and NDEs. So without any further ado, this is Psyche and Matter in Alchemy and Modern Science by Marie-Louise von Franz. Western alchemy originated in Alexandrian times, when the philosophical mind of the Greeks encountered the techno-magic of the Orient and the North African cultures. Before this time, that great turn of mind had happened in Greece from the 7th to the 4th centuries BC, that turn which one could call the birth of Western science. Ultimately, it consisted in a change of the god image. Before this, the Greeks venerated a group of anthropomorphic gods, but now a new archetypal image arose from the depths, the idea of one divine basic principle, arche as they called it, of the universe. This one principle was either something spiritual, for instance numbers, one thinks of the Pythagoreans, or a spiritual vortex, Anaxagoras the infinite, or the sphere of existence, or some kind of primordial matter, water, Thales of Miletos, a mind-endowed fire, Heraclitus, air, all the atoms of Democritus, the four elements, or later, in the times of Stoic philosophy, a fiery, all-encompassing divine pneuma spirit. The older gods, Zeus, Hera, and so on, were either declared to have been an illusion or, more frequently, reinterpreted by a newborn science, the so-called hermeneutics, 
as symbols of the newly discovered divine world principle. Zeus was interpreted as the universal Numa, Ares and Mars as the fire, Hera as the air, Demeter as the earth, and so forth. There was no real contrast between spirit and psyche versus matter as we know it today. The natural realm was understood by the Greeks as being animated by a world psyche or world spirit, and this psychic principle was not separated from matter, except with Parmenides or Plato, but it was a formal principle which coexisted with matter. A great part of what we recognize today as being psychic belonged in the view of the old Greeks to a super-individual, objective world soul. In the view of the Stoic philosophers, Ares and Mars symbolized the angry affect, Aphrodite and Venus, the love passion, Athena, the reasonable mind, etc. These impulses, however, existed in the outer universe and only occasionally seized the individual from outside. Another part of what we call today the psyche existed in different parts of the human body. For instance, the phrenes, which meant originally the lungs, and later the diaphragm, in the liver, in the heart, or in the brain. With these body centers, Ulysses had conversations, as with another human being. In the later centuries BC, astrology, which came from Asia Minor, spread widely over the whole area and the idea that the gods were identical with certain psychological moods increased even more. Saturn meant depression, Venus love, Hermes the flexible intellect, and so on. The constellation of such gods at the moment of an individual's birth, the horoscope, determined the psychic structure of that person. Through the influence of Eastern astrology, a new idea came into the foreground which had been rather strange to the Greek mind before. Namely, the idea that certain basic psychic structures, we would now call them archetypes, had a relation to time and to certain numinous moments of time. A numinous time moment is called kairos in Greek. Kairos means a magical moment in which synchronistic events happen. The Chinese, the Babylonian, and the Mayan civilizations all identified some days of the calendar with certain gods. The gods constellated themselves in a great order of time, in a definite sequence. This represents, like the I Ching in China, as Jung once pointed out, a first attempt to grasp an order of the collective unconscious, or a time-ordered interplay of its archetypes. This basic idea of astrology appears in the writings of Zosimos of Panopolis and continued to play a major or minor role in later alchemy. What was completely lacking in the development of Greek science, with the exception of perhaps pseudo-Democritus, was the actual practical chemical or physical experiment. The latter developed in another era in what I called before the techno-magic of Asia Minor and Egypt. Africa is always bringing something new, as the Romans said. In the oldest metallurgy of the Mesopotamians, 
all substances were looked at as being gods. As Eliade has shown, copper, iron, and bronze were divine factors. This was even more so in the view of the old Egyptians. Even at the highest point of the evolution of their culture, they kept a primordial magical relationship to matter. All chemical substances were divine, they even were the gods. The statues of stone, for instance, represented directly the living gods themselves. This identity of material substance and the divine shows itself especially clearly in the so-called liturgy of the dead. Each dead person, according to Egyptian belief, becomes the god Osiris, the hidden god of the underworld, not in some invisible way or in the way of an analogy, but through the actual concrete operations of the mummification of the corpse. By the mummification of the corpse, the dead person was turned into a god. So bathing the corpse in natron, or sodium hydrate, oiling the corpse, or wrapping him in the mummy bands, is how he was transformed into the god of the universe, embracing in himself, then, all the other gods. Sodium hydrate, or natron, is an Egyptian neter, which simply means god. The bath in Neter is a concrete deification in a god solution. The linen wrappings of the body are concretely the goddesses Isis and Nephthys, who embrace the dead person. In this Egyptian techno-magic, another even more important idea was included, though it was probably not conscious to the Egyptians, namely the idea that man can manipulate or handle the gods. For instance, the leader of the mummification process, the Anubis priest, was actually handling god material. Still another idea was involved in these mummification techniques, an idea which dominated throughout alchemy for the next millennium, namely the preoccupation with producing an eternal, indestructible resurrection body for the dead. It is obvious that even today, the question of death and life after death is a point where the problem of the relationship of psyche and matter still touches us most personally. In lifetime, we identify with our body, so when the body dies and it becomes seemingly inanimate matter, how will we save our individual identity from dissolution in the universe? How can our psyche survive without some kind of body? Here the question is no longer one of scientific curiosity. It becomes a burning personal problem. When the speculative mind of the Greeks met with the experimental techno-magical practices and experiences of the Orient, they cross-fertilized each other tremendously. This was the moment of birth of alchemy. One of the oldest texts of the first century AD, the celebrated instructions of Camarios to Cleopatra, concerns itself exclusively with the production of an immortal resurrection body. The philosopher's stone was thought to be the resurrection body. The secret of the philosopher's stone is represented by a drama in which first psyche, body, and mind lie buried in Hades tortured by a spirit of darkness. But then, after many washing operations, 
the soul calls to the cleansed body. Awake from the underworld, arise from the grave. Clothe thyself with spirituality and deification, for the call of resurrection has reached thee. And the soul, the text continues, is now happy in her new house, that is, the resurrection body. First she found him wrapped in darkness. Now a statue full of light and divine quality has been erected. The fire has unified them. The womb of fire has borne them, and one image was completed through body, soul, and mind. They all have become one. Thus arises the one nature which overcomes all other natures. This same resurrection body is also called the secret of the spiritual vortex, the wheel of the stars which circles around the North Pole. For in old Egypt, the dead person who became Osiris circles with the never-setting stars round the North Pole. Some other old texts of the 3rd century AD were written by a Greek living in Egypt, by Zosimos of Panopolis, who is known to many people through Jung's wonderful interpretations. In his search for the basic material of the universe, Zosimos let himself be guided by his dreams and visions, which revealed to him in strange archetypal images a mysterious sacrifice or transformation process. In his writings, a new motif turns up, which comes from Gnostic philosophy and which became a central theme in later alchemy, namely the idea of the God-man, the Anthropos, who has fallen down into the cosmic matter. From there he must be redeemed and freed by the alchemists. Jung has explained this motif in Psychology and Alchemy. It is the literal representation of a projection. The God-man, or Anthropos, is no longer located, as he was for the Gnostics, in some metaphysical realm, but is now projected, which means literally thrown, into matter. Matter, therefore, now contains the secret of the incarnated divine man, or in our Jungian language, the secret of the self. It is precisely because matter now seemed to contain the God-man mystery that Zosimos began a new procedure in his chemical experiments, namely to attend to his dreams, visions, and meditative exercises during his work, that is, to let himself be guided by his unconscious. This is an introverted creative method, which most outstanding later alchemists also used. Basically, it is a sort of active imagination which is performed not by writing or painting, but by mixing chemical substances, substances which were at the same time gods or demons. Lead, for instance, is Saturn, a demon who creates depression and madness. Quicksilver is Hermes, an aspect of the Anthropos or God-man. Gold is the glorified, indestructible final form. Like the author of the Camarios text, Zosimos also always thought in astrological terms. The numinous moment in time, the so-called Kairos, was decisively important to him. In his writings, he warns against making so-called Kairikai Bafai, 
astrologically conditioned transformations. He calls them the work of demons. Only if the alchemist has through meditation established a relationship to his inner self, that is, to the anthropos and matter, can he produce the right kind of transformations. Here we can see the beginnings of a critical attitude toward the unconscious, a differentiation between deceiving synchronistic events, constellated by autonomous complexes, which the ancients called demons, and positive constructive synchronistic events, which arise in connection with an appearance of the self. This is a problem in modern analysis to which I will return later. This short, sketchy historical survey has shown us that in late antiquity, the major part of what we call today the psyche was located outside the individual, in the animated matter of the universe. It consisted of a multiplicity of colliding components, or of gods, star divinities, and demons, or of powers in the organs of the body, or in chemical substances. Jung has shown that what we now call the collective unconscious has never been something psychological. It always was relegated to the outside cosmos, to the extra-psychic cosmic sphere. Man protected himself against it with religious symbols and rituals in order to avoid experiencing it within himself. Only today do we discover the collective unconscious in the area of inner psychic experience. Furthermore, in antiquity, the conscious ego of man was a helpless victim of different moods or divine influences. Only slowly did man develop an ethical, critical attitude towards these powers. It is the spreading of Christianity which primarily produced an ethical progress a differentiation of ethical feelings. This happened, however, at the cost of the antique sciences, which lost their importance for the first millennium AD in Europe. In the Christian world, the multiplicity of the soul, so many demons and soul gods in the individual, became suddenly a modern problem. The Church Father Origen refers to this problem several times. In Second Kings, Chapter 1, verse 4, there is a completely unimportant sentence which runs, quote, And there was one man. But, as you know, every sentence in the Bible was always taken as having a deeper meaning. On this sentence, quote, There was one man, Origen comments, quote, As long as we still are sinners, we cannot earn this name of one man, because each one of us is not one, but many. You can see how that man who is considered to be one person is not at all one, but there seems to be in him as many persons as moors. Moors could perhaps translate in this case as patterns of behavior. According to the scripture that the fool changes like the moon. End quote. And in a commentary on Leviticus 52, Origen says also, quote, Realize that you have in yourself herds of cattle, herds of sheep and goats, that the birds of heaven are in thee. Realize that you are a second microcosm containing the sun and moon and the stars. End quote. All these different mores, ways of reaction, 
become only one through the influence of Christ, who was considered to be the one man, the real vir unus. The monotheism of the Old Testament and the idea of Christ being the one man required from other human beings an ethical decision in their confrontation with the varied inner demons and animal souls. But even then, the latter were not regarded as being in man himself, but rather partly extraneous, attached to man, so to speak, but not in him. I mentioned in the beginning how the gods of Greece were psychified by their interpretation as psychological powers. The Christian interpretation of the scripture continued this art of hermeneutics in exactly the same manner. Following the example of Philo Judaeus, who interpreted the Old Testament in a symbolic way, the great Origen also began to interpret many passages of the New Testament in such a symbolic, psychological form. Many miraculous events described in the Bible were, according to his view, not to be believed literally, but only as symbolic images, icones, which illustrate the actions of God. For as he says, the visible material world points to something beyond itself, namely to the invisible realm of spiritual truth. Especially, many stories and motifs of the Old Testament were understood as symbolic prefigurations of, or veiled allusions to, the events which are reported in the New Testament in which their secret became unveiled. They point to something spiritual, which reveals itself slowly in the course of history. According to Origen, many miracles in the New Testament did not happen concretely, but happened in a sort of subtle body reality. For Christ, as Origen stresses, appeared in the middle between the created and the uncreated things. This middle realm of subtle body quality resembles the older Stoic idea of the pneumatic world soul. What qualifies the Christian miracles is not, according to Origen, their different form, but their higher ethical effect, which manifests itself in Christ and the Christian's more ethical life. Though Christianity brought a moral progress and a greater unification of the personality, there came along with it, as I mentioned before, a big loss. Man no longer experienced the numinosum in nature and in chemical substances. Only evil spirits continued to live there. The symbol of Christ had attracted all projections of positive psychic images upon himself and had taken them away from nature. Thus, an early Christian poet, Ephraim Cyrus, could even say, quote, because the creatures were tired of carrying the prefigurations, the symbols, of Christ's glory, Christ relieved them of their weight, as he relieved the womb which carried him. End quote. Or, quote, Christ clothed himself with the symbols he carried. End quote. The archetypal images of himself. They are a hidden treasure which reveals great wonders when one opens it. This relief of nature, as Ephraim puts it, means a partial taking back of projections from outer nature. But with it, man lost all interest in nature. European alchemy therefore gradually died away. 
Its traditions moved to the North African realm, which remained pagan, especially to Mesopotamia, where later it flourished under Islamic rule. The Islamic culture has brought forth several important creative alchemists, such as Muhammad ibn Umal, 10th century, who became famous in later Western alchemy under the name of Senior, which is the translation of Sheikh. Jung has often pointed out that Islam is a religion of pure eros. Accordingly, conjunctio symbolism, the heros gamos of the sun and moon, plays a great role in the writings of Senior. In itself, the motif of the sacred conjunctio also springs from the Egyptian ritual of the dead, and again comes up in the Kamarios text, which I mentioned before. From then on, the motif of the heroes gamos, the sacred marriage, remained the central theme of alchemy. It denotes, on the one hand, chemical affinity, and on the other, the union of psychic opposites in the process of individuation, which Jung has so deeply interpreted in the psychology of the transference and Mysterium Conjunctionis. Around AD 1000, the knowledge of the antique natural sciences began to return from the Islamic land to Europe. This was a result of the Crusades. The Sicilian and Spanish Moors and Jews were the main translators and intermediaries. The so-called Liber Sextus of the great Persian philosopher Ibn Sena, who in Latin is called Avicenna, exerted an especially great influence on some of the prominent scholastic thinkers in the 12th and 13th centuries, such as Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, and Roger Bacon. This Liber Sextus spread the essential idea that in the soul of man there is a power of imagination which can produce concrete changes in matter. When the scientist is in a state of great emotional tensions, and is also helped by the astrological constellations, then he can by his own imagination transform matter within the retort. His soul can actually change chemical matter. The introverted aspect of alchemy thus returned into Western science, its essence being a creative act of imagination performed with substances. It has to be thought of as a kind of primitive experimenting with nature, on the level described in Carlos Castaneda's books, what the Indian Don Juan calls, quote, dreaming after the world has been stopped. You'll remember, if you know those books, how Castaneda has to learn dreaming. Don Juan's dreaming is this kind of active imagination, which you do not as we generally do on paper with words or painting, but in nature, with things of nature. Plants and stones then begin to speak to the experimenter. It is very similarly described by Albertus Magnus and many other medieval alchemists. This renewal of antique ideas was first neither fully accepted by the church, nor was it rejected. Some authors identified the world soul with the Holy Ghost, or assumed that it had separate existence. Sometimes the Philosopher's Stone was identified with Christ, sometimes rather with the resurrection body. 
and the strange thought that the alchemist manipulates God, so to speak, and tries to redeem and complete him, was expressed but, as Jung points out, never became quite conscious. If this fluctuating state of affairs had continued to exist, a great cross-fertilization of ideas between alchemy and Christian theology might have occurred, but there was one psychological trend which prevented this cross-fertilization, and this trend has become especially destructive today. Therefore, I would like to return briefly to the historical beginnings of science, which I described before, to look at this special problem. I mentioned that some of the Greek philosophers, the so-called sophists, did not reinterpret the older gods into the symbols of the new ones, the newfound principles, but declared that they had been illusions. This was the birth moment of enlightened rationalism, which still haunts us, because it means robbing the world of its divine and psychic qualities. The basic motivation behind this way of thinking is fear. For in a world which is rationally explained, as Jung once said, one feels more at home. The second motivation is the power complex. For wanting to know everything completely and exactly is a power drive, coupled with a wish to protect oneself against everything unexpected and irrational. The antique atheistic rationalism had only a small and short success and was not able to destroy man's religious attitude. But unfortunately, it remained alive within one domain, namely in the religious polemics of the sophists and later in the Christian father's polemical attitude against all other religions. They called the latter illusions, old wives' tales, etc. According to my view, this was due to the patriarchal element in the Judeo-Christian religion, its intolerance and aggression against all other religious standpoints. Because Christianity did not contain the feminine principle, the latter also became intolerant, as Jung has described in Answer to Job, and made itself felt heavily in the hard, concrete, material presence of Mother Church. Because matter was no longer included in the divine symbol of totality, a compensatory materialism came into being, a vengeance, so to speak, of the rejected mother archetype. Whoever reads a book on modern theology or studies the financial activities of the Vatican knows what I mean. This materialism was even more coarse in the Middle Ages, when popes openly fought for land and money. The marital harmony between father-spirit and mother-matter thus fell apart. Spirit became a hard dogmatic intellectualism, a scholastic philosophy, and matter seduced man into a concretistic, materialistic outlook. Rationalism and materialism thus belong together, and hold together in the Marxist doctrine which has dominated a great part of our world. The Kabbalists would say that God has been separated from his Shekinah. According to their idea, this causes all evil in the world. This unfortunate development came into the full light of day in the 17th century, which is the time when the hypothesis of a world soul and of nature being animated was definitely abandoned. 
This is why, in a dream, Jung had to return to the 17th century in order to rediscover alchemy. In that time, Descartes began that, quote, idiotic clockwork fantasy, as Jung calls it. The idea that God once and forever has created the world out of inanimate matter, and that it now ticks along in a mechanically determined way. Descartes actually proved his mechanical causal outlook with the statement that, quote, God will keep forever to his own rules which he once set. In other words, God can no longer be creative. It is interesting that this idea is still behind the determinism of the natural sciences. You all know of the famous desperate cry of Albert Einstein to Niels Bohr when he was confronted for the first time with the results of quantum physics. God does not play with dice. Now, which God does not play with dice? Certainly a God of law does not play with dice. But think, for instance, of the God of whom Heraclitus said, quote, A boy rules the universe, a boy who sets the stones on the chessboard, a playing child, end quote. So it is only one God image which does not allow God to change. There are, in other civilizations, God images which do allow God to change or to continue to be creative. Then, when determinism got its death blow, so to speak, certain physicists, like Wolfgang Pauli, began to believe in symmetry. Symmetry was then the form of God, again something very stable, something which does not change. And when Pauli heard by telephone from the States that the principle of parity was broken through in a certain weak interaction, he exclaimed, quote, But then God is a left-hander! You see the shock? In the 17th century, theology hardened in the Counter-Reformation and became even more dogmatic than before, and the rationalism of the scientists also stiffened by clinging to the prejudice that matter is ruled by mechanical laws. Where was the psyche in all this? The world soul, what Jung calls the collective unconscious, or the objective psyche? Its existence was simply denied. What remained was only the conscious ego. Descartes identified it with his thinking function, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. Others like Spinoza or Hegel with their intuition. The gods of the body organs also disappeared. Instead, people quibbled about the localization of the subjective psyche whether it was in the adrenal glands, the heart, the brain, or certain parts of the brain, etc. And when they could not find the psyche there, most scientists gave up looking for it. The vengeance of the rejected mother archetype went even further. In all scientific matters, a coarse concretism of ideas took over, which destroyed even religion. Jung has made evident that religious statements are essentially impossible from a concrete point of view, i.e. paradoxical, in that they testify to the autonomous reality of the psyche. Rationalism, therefore, destroyed one article of faith after another, first in Protestant countries, then more and more in the Catholic realm, supported by Paul VI. 
Today, Freud, who declared religion a neurotic illusion, seems to have won out. He is often quoted by modern theologians of both denominations. But that world soul in which many god powers had become one, containing star gods, animal demons, where was it? People still believed in the possibility of becoming possessed by devils or animal demons. It was the time of witch hunting, that black tide of mud of occultism against which Freud tried to warn Jung. Against the rise of rationalism, some romantic philosophers, Schubert von Hartmann, still tried to assert the existence of a night aspect of the soul. So did the Rosicrucians and some German pietists, but they could not prevail. It is the great achievement of Jung to have rediscovered empirically the objective psyche. Through this greatest of his achievements, the germs and groping attempts of the alchemists have led to a new view of reality. As Jung often pointed out, the collective unconscious is not only an identical psychic structure in all human beings, but as he also stressed, it is additionally an omnipresent continuum, an unextended everywhere, or unextended presence. Quote, that is to say, when something happens here at point A, which touches upon or affects the collective unconscious, it has happened everywhere. End quote. Hence the strange parallelism of Chinese and European periods of style, or the unfathomable simultaneity of Christ and Krishna or the fact that the same idea is sometimes produced by two scientists working completely independently of each other. In this view of reality, the problem of spirit versus matter, or psyche versus matter, assumes a completely new form. Spirit is seen as the dynamic aspect of the objective psyche, that which moves us, inspires us, which spontaneously produces and orders images in the inner field of vision. You could also call it the composer of dreams. The most primitive self-manifestation of this spirit, according to Jung, is natural number. What spirit is in itself, in its trans-psychic essence, we cannot know. Matter, on the contrary, as the opposite of spirit, manifests itself in the instinctual or even physiological processes which touch upon our psyche. We can observe it with our senses, or with their equivalents, instruments, but we cannot define its trans-psychic essence. Thus spirit and matter are two unknown realms of existence, which we call inner and outer reality. We have to make such a dualistic distinction because there are two archetypes at work, Father Spirit and Mother Matter. We do not know these archetypes in their essence. We can only observe their effects on our psychic system. The only immediate reality we know is psychic, psychic experience. That is something the old alchemists already suspected when they approached matter not only from without in chemical experiments, but also from within by active imagination. They knew that the psychological emotional condition of the observer was involved in their work. As they knew very little about matter and the objective psyche, they naturally ascribed to matter all sorts of qualities 
which nowadays we know to be psychological projections. The rationalism of the 17th century thus had one advantage after all. It drove father spirit and mother matter so far apart that now we can reunite them in a cleaner way. Today physicists have seen that when they penetrate into the microphysical realm, they cannot exclude the mental presuppositions of the observer from the experiment. They have to return to the attitude of the alchemists on a higher level, so to speak. The alchemist, as Jung has put it, experienced in projection, as a quality of outer matter, what really was his own unconscious. Quote, in an age when there was as yet no empirical psychology, such a concretization was bound to be made, because everything unconscious, once it was activated, was projected into matter. That is to say, it approached people from outside. But just because of this intermingling of the physical and the psychic, it always remains an obscure point whether the ultimate transformations in the alchemical process are to be sought more in the material or more in the spiritual realm. There was no, quote, either or for that age, but there did exist an intermediate realm between mind and matter, i.e., a psychic realm of subtle bodies whose characteristic is to manifest themselves in a mental as well as material form. Obviously, the existence of this intermediate realm comes to a sudden stop the moment we try to investigate matter in and for itself, apart from all projection. And it remains non-existent as long as we believe we know anything conclusive about matter or the psyche. But the moment when physics touches upon the quote, untrodden, untreadable regions, and when psychology has at the same time to admit that there are other forms of psychic life besides the acquisitions of personal consciousness. In other words, when psychology too touches on an impenetrable darkness, then the intermediate realm of subtle bodies comes to life again, and the physical and the psychic are once more blended in an indissoluble unity. We have come very near to this turning point today. End quote. Since Jung wrote this in 1944, this turning point has manifested itself worldwide. Everywhere we find traces that point to a turning of man toward the inner reality of the psyche, toward his true and only foundation of creative fantasy, while rationalism and materialism speed to their downfall in the hands of crazy power devils and state leaders. But the power of rationalism lives not only in such people, its demonic power still lives in us all. Wherever planning is done only rationally, under the compulsion of so-called outer facts, I would rather call it compulsion neurosis, a destructive devil is at work. Whenever we think we must alter outer nature, or manipulate human beings, or change them technically, we work for the destruction of our soul and our own life. The great breakthrough which put an end to the dualism of psyche and matter was achieved by Jung in his work on synchronicity. It is by no means a chance event that synchronicity has to do with the problem of time, because time is, for the physicist also, an unresolved problem. Mirror symmetry versus asymmetry, time reversibility versus directed linear time, 
according to the second thermodynamic law, are still problems discussed in microphysics. It is just at this point that Jung's investigations into the realm of the objective psyche come to meet the physicists, in that marginal realm of the psychoid archetype, where activated or excited archetypes simultaneously manifest themselves in inner and outer reality, either in direct identity or in a symbolic identity of meaning. Time then appears no longer as an empty frame of reference in which events take place, but as a qualitatively characterized stream of events. In his investigation of synchronistic phenomena, Jung made a further important distinction, namely between the regular eternal or timeless aspect of the principle of synchronicity, which he called a-causal or a priori orderedness and irregularly occurring spontaneous synchronistic events. The latter point to an active, even arbitrary, ordering of the transcendental background of existence, or to, as he puts it, a continuous creation. In another context, Jung termed this background of existence the Unus Mundus, which I think is one of the most important discoveries he made. Unus Mundus is an expression from medieval philosophy, which meant that when God created the world, he first made, like a good architect, a plan in his head. He imagined the world in a plan, and only then did he realize it concretely. So at a certain moment the world existed, but not yet concretely. It existed only as an image in the mind of God, and it had only potential reality. That is what the medieval philosophers called the Unus Mundus and identified with Sophia, or the wisdom of God. The Unus Mundus is, in Jung's definition, a potential matrix. It is what Jung, speaking informally, called the background of existence. According to Jung's idea, some manifested aspects of a-causal orderedness could be further explored by an investigation of the natural numbers. Spontaneous synchronistic events, however, cannot be predicted, but can only be explained after the event. They are inevitably linked with the individual who experiences the meaning. In this connection, I would now like to return to Zosimos and his distinction between Kairakai Bafai, demonic, astrologically conditioned synchronistic events, and synchronistic transformations connected with the divine spirit or the self. I have seen that synchronistic events occur mainly in two kinds of situations. First, they happen when an individual is pressed by the unconscious toward a creative discovery or some progress in his becoming conscious. Second, synchronistic events tend to occur in the beginning of a psychotic episode. Schizoid people who are in danger of gliding into such an episode often experience a whole series of synchronistic signs, miracles in their view, which reinforce their falling into the unconscious. These signs resemble the demonic Kairakai Bafai, which Zosimos rejected. In such a case, a reflective concentration of the ego on the self is missing. Then the shadow of the self manifests itself as a chaotic multitude of demons, i.e., autonomous complexes. This is generally coupled with that strange concretism, 
so typical of schizophrenic thinking. Apparently, the positive aspect of the self in the objective psyche can only manifest when the individual ego concentrates upon the self and tries to realize its messages creatively. If it does not do this, the same unconscious contents show their tendency towards self-manifestation in poltergeist phenomena and meaningless spooky events. The latter have no meaning, but perhaps could have a meaning if only the ego would look for it. The gods, as Jung writes, want to manifest themselves creatively. In my opinion, this is a problem which modern parapsychology should investigate. Today, the above-mentioned black tide of mud of occultism has come to the surface in the cult of Satan and black magic, which is countered by a rather helpless interest in exorcism. In spite of all disadvantages, this seems to me to contain a glimmer of hope. A new form of alchemy, namely, active imagination as Jung discovered it, may spring up, promising increased insight into the unitary essence of psyche and matter. Only through this can the individual be freed from all sorts of states of possession. But there still remains the question of whether or not this can help our general collective situation. I would therefore, in conclusion, like to repeat the story about an experience of Richard Wilhelm, which Jung told my friend Barbara Hanna to repeat in every lecture. It is the famous story of the Rainmaker. In Kiaochao came a great drought so that men and animals died in the hundreds. In despair, the citizens called for an old Rainmaker who lived in the mountains nearby. Richard Wilhelm saw how the Rainmaker was brought into town in a sedan chair, a tiny little gray-bearded man. He asked to be left alone outside the town in a little hut, and after three days it rained, and even snowed. Richard Wilhelm succeeded in being allowed to interview the old man, and asked him how he made the rain. But he answered, quote, I haven't made the rain, of course not. And then after a pause he added, You see, it was like this. Throughout the drought, the whole of nature and all the men and women here were deeply disturbed. They were no longer in Tao. When I arrived here, I became also disturbed. It was so bad that it took me three days to bring myself again into order. And then he added with a smile, Then naturally it rained. If we define the collective unconscious as Jung did, as an omnipresent continuum of an unextended presence or an unextended everywhere, then something that happens at one point, which touches the collective unconscious, has happened everywhere simultaneously. What Jung called an omnipresence, he also termed elsewhere a relativity of space-time in the deeper layers of the collective unconscious. This archetypal realm is eternal, i.e. outside time, and also everywhere, i.e. outside space. In a letter that has not come out yet in English, Jung even said, quote, We might have to give up thinking in terms of space and time when we deal with the reality of the archetypes. It could be that the psyche is an unextended intensity, not a body moving in time. One could assume that the psyche arises gradually from the smallest extension to an infinite intensity, 
and thus robs bodies of their reality when the psychic intensity transcends the speed of light. Our brain might be the place of transformation, where the relatively infinite tensions or intensities of the psyche are tuned down to perceptible frequencies and extensions, but in itself the psyche would have no dimension in space and time at all." End quote. Jung called this idea pure speculation, but it seems to me that it might give us a key to explain some discoveries which were made since he wrote this. With this idea, we might understand the story of the Rainmaker a bit better. The Rainmaker was able to touch that psychic center of highest intensity in the collective psyche, the Tao, and this restoration of the Tao manifested itself simultaneously everywhere. The Rainmaker of Kiao Chu was the only man who took his own inner psychic disorder seriously. This unintentionally saved the whole country. It seems to me one of the greatest merits of Jung that he did not leave us an intellectually closed system or doctrine, but that he opened so many doors through which we can perceive an enormous amount of new creative possibilities for insight. To clarify these creative possibilities, we would have to have a group of physicists who are willing to take on a deep Jungian analysis, not because we want to rule them or influence them, simply that they learn. And then we would have to have a few Jungian analysts who would take the trouble to study physics. I think that's what first would have to be done, so that both knew really deeply the other subject. Then the next point, Jung thought, was to investigate synchronicity further, because synchronistic events are obviously the meeting point. In a synchronistic event, something happens materially and psychically, coincides, and is united by common meaning. It was Jung's idea that synchronistic events were always known, only they were called in past times signs of the gods, or in Christian times they were called miracles, or evil miracles of the devil, numinous events. Therefore, there are already methods to investigate them, namely, the divination methods. Now in the higher civilizations, all divination methods which are a bit more advanced use the natural integers. The natural integers are not the negative-positive, complex-hypercomplex, rational-irrational numbers, but simply the natural numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, etc. That's the natural integers. As you know, Western mathematicians are interested in the natural numbers only as a class only interested in making logical deductions that apply to a whole class of them. They are not interested in the individual number as a qualitative number. The famous Poincaré said, The problem is, the natural integers are all exceptions, especially the first ten. They are all different, and therefore there are very few theorems, that is, logical generalizations, to be deduced from them. But there has always been another view of number, number symbolism. This studied the individual qualities of the numbers, but this was simply wild mythological speculation. These symbolists discarded the mathematical qualities, and the mathematicians discarded the symbolic qualities. So we have two streams of science, 
and there is nothing in between. The only man who seems to have seen a bit deeper is the German mathematician Hermann Weil, who has written a very profound book on the philosophy of mathematics and natural sciences. He pointed out that the natural numbers have completely individual mathematical qualities, and that, he said, must account also for their magical importance. For the first time, he tried to unite these two streams. Jung's idea was that one should study the individuality of these numbers, be interested in what each one has that the others have not, rather than what they have in common. He made a note three inches square, on which he wrote, 1. The All 2. The Only Even Prime Number 3. The First Uneven Prime Number the sum of one and two, the first triangular number. Four, the first quadrangular number, the first square number, and so on. Then he said he couldn't do it. He felt too old. That was about two years before his death. He gave me that little paper. He said, I give it to you. I never found out whether he thought I should do it, or if he thought I should keep it and hand it over if I ever should meet somebody I thought would be suitable to do such a study. After his death, I preferred to assume the latter because I felt I was much too hopeless to do anything myself. Then, as I didn't meet anybody for a long time, my conscience began to bite me. And that's why I have now written this rather unreadable book, Number and Time, making at least a little attempt. I have tried the first four integers, as you know. I counted to four and tried to assemble the qualities of each in psychology, mythology, physics, and mathematics. And it is, to me at least, quite clear that they really have the same function. That if you compare the role of three in mathematics and physics, there is a similar function in psychological and symbolic manifestation. Then I discovered, to my amazement, that Chinese mathematics were completely built on this idea of the quality of numbers. I found a wonderful story, and I forgot somehow to put it in my book. I still am angry with myself about that. It shows in a nutshell how the Chinese do not think of number as a quantity. There were once eleven generals, and they had to vote if they should attack or retreat. They voted, and eight were for the attack, and three were for going back. Therefore, they retreated. The three had won out because three is the number of harmony. Three is a better number, qualitatively, than eight. So the people who hit the three won out. Imagine the slap in the face to our quantitative thinking. Think if the American presidential vote should be taken that way. If you would, for instance, fix a number and say the party which gets closest to that number has won but that's Chinese thinking. There you see another world of number. And all populations, not only the Chinese with the I Ching, but all populations of the world who have developed divination methods to explore synchronicity use this kind of number. That is one way that Jung hinted one should study further. I think the other way could be now the task of parapsychology. Parapsychologists could pick up the idea of synchronicity and go into it. In Germany, Bender has done that a little bit. He has taken to the idea of synchronicity 
and has, with a colleague, investigated the dream series of an actress and all the synchronistic events which happened. They came to the conclusion that synchronicity really explains it better than telepathy and all the other parapsychological conceptualizations. But specific experimental setups I haven't yet found. I myself tried to make a more modest little start, to go into a modest little corner, not attack the big problem because I did not feel up to it. But I wanted to see if I could find in mythology and fairy tales, because there I know the field, if there are not number sequences in tales which might reveal certain structures, because Jung thought that number is the most primitive aspect of an archetype, altogether the most primitive aspect of what he called spirit, which is the activated archetype. He said, if you strip an object of everything, its color, its size, its consistency, what remains is its how-manyness, its number. That is the most primitive thing, the primordial thing of the psyche and the mind, its most primordial manifestation, and therefore there must be a relationship between number and archetypal images. Now there are many systems, as I mentioned, the Mayan and the Chinese and the Babylonian gods all belong to a certain calendar number, to a certain day. That is the clear relationship between time, number, and archetypal image. But that is, to me, not sufficient. I have a feeling that one could find out more. I have made endless charts, and then I have become discouraged and left it. I have left it a year, and now my dreams say I should not leave it that it's still there, and that I've only attacked it from the wrong angle. So now I have to pick it up again and try from another angle. I don't know, I'm just groping, that's all I can say. Another question for the science of the future is how the feminine element will manifest more in science. I have no general answer, but I can give a concrete example where I have experienced it. I have a pupil who studied agricultural engineering. He was sent to a little valley in the mountains with the task of exploring whether this valley had the right to continue to exist. See already the arrogance of the patriarchal logos at the university. One decides that this valley might not be paying financially, and therefore the people have, so to speak, no right to exist there. That's the patriarchal logos. They gave my pupil such an amount of statistics. How many men? How many women? How many farms? How many average earnings? How many taxes? Enormous statistics. And said he must work it out with that. Now he did that because he wanted his paper for the exam. He did first the statistical part. Then he quoted from Jung's The Undiscovered Self, the big attack against statistics, that they give only a mental abstract image of reality. And then he went to this valley and talked in every village to the people. Especially, he assembled all the young farmers and asked them if they wanted to stay and why and why not. He photographed them and he asked the teachers in the school to let the children write papers about whether they wanted to stay or not and why and if they liked their valley. And he put all this together and made a color picture book for the second part of his paper. It came out that the people in an average, oh I should not now talk statistics, but in many villages, out of 19 peasants, 17 wanted to stay. 
They all had fantasies about how they could be helped. They said, if you help us with money to repair such and such a sawmill, we can subsist. So at the end of his paper, he gave absolute concrete financial propositions how these people could be helped and not be displaced and so forth. His professor was so amazed over this that he said, well, that is a new idea. We know that statistical procedures are nonsense, but we just had no alternative. Well, what happened, to make a long story short, was that the government of one of our cantons, Uri, the central canton, who have always been unruly people and have the bull as their totem animal, and still feel themselves to be very much the nucleus of Switzerland, suddenly picked this young man, through certain connections, and said he should do the whole land planning of Uri. Now Baron had already spent a lot of money on that land planning, because they were sure they would get it. You can imagine the political battle. The young man then did the land planning of the whole of Uri, and in the exact same way as he had done in the valley, talked to all the people, and he made a completely different land planning. Namely, we had to plan not only for a boom, but also for an economic depression. We made a double plan. How shall we look at it if there is a depression? How shall we look at it if there is a boom? Everything we took with a yes and a no. We tried everywhere to find the middle way, and to leave leeway for free decisions, and so on. Then Baron blocked us, and it looked hopeless. And at that moment, the young man, who is a Protestant, dreamt that the Black Madonna of Einsiedeln came to him and said, I have a secret island, an eight-pointed star, covered with bushes, and in this island you can always find protection, and I will see that you get this plan through. Go to Mr. B. So I said, well, up you go to B. He went to B. I had already, long before we began this plan, given the young man a special book by a certain man who had written beautifully about the mythology of Uri, its fairy tales and sagas. I said, if you want to do planning for that land, you must first read its sagas. That's the most important thing. Then you know something about the psyche of the land. So he arrived at B's. Mr. B was not home, but his wife was home. They started a conversation, and Mrs. B was a terrific admirer of that book. They hit it off like that. Until Mr. B came, the young man sat comfortably with Mrs. B, and everything went all right. Well, again to make a long story short, the plan went through. On the 17th of September, the whole land voted for his plan and Baron was left scratching its head. The Black Madonna did it. You see, the Black Madonna is an Earth Mother, and it's obvious if you plan the land, you plan, so to speak, on the belly of the Earth Mother. So she came and had her say. She pushed the plan through because she preferred it. So it is in a tiny little spot in Switzerland that this miracle happened. But still, that was a victory of the feminine archetype and it was irrational. It was the exceptions of the irrational. It was the exceptions of the psyche of the people, of not only planning materialistically, but of looking at the feelings of the people, how they felt and what they wanted. And also, not to always have this bigger, better success outlook, this materialistic outlook, 
but to say, what shall we do if bad times come? How shall we get through if there is depression? To be feminine is always to be closer to the earth, to be more realistic, not to fly away with plans and ideas. So I think somehow a change of attitude along those lines is in my mind, but on the big scale, I can't predict. Okay, so that was Psyche and Matter in Alchemy and Modern Science by Marie-Louise von Franz. So I think I will keep my, my commentary on it to, to a minimum and, and keep it a bit shorter than usual um, because I don't think that I have a whole lot more to add than, than to what she already said. I mean, ho- maybe I can hopefully make things a little easier to, to understand or explain them in some way, but... Uh, this is something that that even I had to you know read several times to to really capture the full depth of what she's saying. And not only is there a depth there, but uh, one of the reasons that I was so compelled to to read this chapter and share it with you all was just the vast uh, breadth of of the topics that she talks about, going from this psychological history, starting with the Greeks, moving through to, to uh, Egyptian practices and to the uh, coming of Christianity and to a bit of Islam, to, to <laughs> birth of modern science and, and just all sorts of things, not to mention the, the talking about synchronicity, talking about the idea of number. It's just it was it's a really fascinating chapter and and so I hope you all got something out of it too. But so I'll just kind of poke around and and see if there's uh, just talk about little things that stood out to me because I think there's a lot in here that is still very relevant today and and relevant for us when talking about the idea of a, an NDE and death. So first thing that I, I thought was really interesting was, was this idea that in, you know, in our history and, and for our ancestors and, and way back, you know, as we go back further into time, this, this idea that perhaps a lot of our inner psychology was, was projected out onto the outer world, that, that people interacted with their own psyches in 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 nature and and uh, you know out out on the town or the village or wherever they were it, it was something that was uh, not necessarily recognized as something from within and I, I you know I think if you if you look at anthropological material especially and and ethnographic uh, studies of, of indigenous people and, and, and historical ideas of, of what people believed and the, their stories and what they, and the way they interacted with the world. I think it, it, it lends credence to what von Franz talks about here, this idea for the Greeks, at least that, that a lot of these inner psychological processes, processes were out in the world and they took the form of divine gods and spiritual beings. And so uh, I thought that was, was fascinating. Uh, a quote 
from, from the chapter, there was no real contrast between spirit and psyche versus matter as we know it today. It was a formal principle which coexisted with matter. And she talked about with the Stoics, the Stoic philosophers, it, these gods and, and beings, uh, spiritual forces, uh, daimons, were first recognized or, or psychized, as she says, that they were recognized to, to represent certain human instincts, like Venus being love and Aries being aggression and war and that sort of thing. And so she traces the roots of the first kind of a, a nascent psychology back to to this idea, this first pulling away of, of these psychic entities, psychic archetypes, processes, uh, this full, uh, this first moment of, of bringing, integrating them to some degree and, and recognizing, recognizing them as, as uh, psychic or, or psychological or as aspects of this world soul, this world spirit, which she kind of starts off with. And she goes on to equate this or at least compare this world soul of the Greeks with this idea of, of the collective unconscious of Jung, of a collective psychic, well, I don't know, matrix or something. Uh, uh, something that just as we all share similar forms in our bodies, that they all have a similar layout, Jung's idea was that we would have a, a similar layout to our psyche or at least similar structures. And so she, she compares this with the, the idea of the world soul of the Greeks. And, and there were both positive and negative forces out in nature, the you know, uh, helpful spirits and, and haunting trickster demons out there in the world. And with the Stoics, these first began to be reclaimed, which I thought was a fascinating idea. And so... I mean, even in this, even in this chapter, uh, Marie Louise von Franz makes mention of of why this this is important and why 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 should we care? And she she mentions that uh, she touches on the idea of death, and I thought this would be an important thing to reiterate. In lifetime, we identify with our body, so when the body dies and it becomes seemingly inanimate matter. How will we save our individual identity from dissolution in the universe? How can our psyche survive without some kind of body? Here, the question is no longer one of scientific curiosity. It becomes a burning personal problem. And so that is why our, I don't know, what we think about the relationship between psyche and matter is matters, <laughs> uh, is important. Because this idea of death, uh, it's, it's not an easy one to face, perhaps, if, if you are fully in the camp of, of where we are only matter, and that's all there is, then, well, then when you die, you're matter and you um, blow away with the wind, you turn into dust, and, and that's that. And some people have come come to a certain degree of peace with that, I suppose. But 
this this whole relationship between psyche and matter it, it matters it's important for that reason not to be redundant um and and really you know it, you can extend it out to the idea of, of religion and science or spirit and and matter it, you know the like I mentioned before, there are a bunch of different ways to parse this. But so she she talks about how in the beginning it it's started to develop with this these ideas of the Greeks and then picked up some of the some of the Egyptian influence and and that's something that we've discussed a little bit in certain podcasts. I've I've read from von Franz's book on dreams and death, and she makes frequent reference to this uh, Camarios text and and its relation to Egyptian mummification, uh, liturgy, and and some of the uh, Egyptian beliefs about death. And so this is this is where she is is. Um, this is where she is saying that the roots of alchemy start to come together from this philosophy of the Greeks and then the, these chemical practices of the Egyptians. And, and from alchemy, I mean, she, she does a good job of, of kind of going through it, although it's, it, it is a rather short summary of the history, but, you know, I thought it was pretty good for, for its length. And, but she she goes on to describe how alchemy ended up becoming the the roots of our uh, a lot of of our modern science from astrology you get astronomy from alchemy you get chemistry i mean i i think even isaac newton had certain alchemical uh i don't know interests hobbies along with the important you know foundations he was laying in physics and so it, it's fascinating that that such a powerful and and strict and and competent thing as as science and the scientific method emerged out of this kind of weird and dreamlike practice of of alchemy. And one thing that I thought was very interesting, just to to pick and choose here the the little things that I talk about from the chapter. Uh, was talking about this idea that came from uh, from Gnostic philosophy that she's talking about Zosimos and some of the things that he incorporated into what would later get rolled into uh, medieval alchemical practices. But this idea of the of the God Man, the Anthropos, which and I suppose this is a Gnostic idea that that became trapped and fell down into matter and got trapped in matter, and it was up to the alchemists to free this god, god man, anthropos, uh, sometimes equated with Christ or sometimes equated with, I think, Adam uh, from Genesis. And uh, just to read from from the chapter here, uh, from there he must be redeemed and freed by the alchemists. And and she talks about how this was a projection of the of of the God image into matter, and how that. I mean, she goes on to describe certain uh, exclamations by physicists regarding God, such as Einstein saying God does not play with dice, or or with Polly saying, well, then God is a left-hander, that, that 
this fascination with matter uh, started, came from this Gnostic influence that got incorporated into early Greek and Egyptian ideas and, and became this, uh, what we know as alchemy. And it's just so fascinating because you can, you can kind of see traces of that today in a way. This, uh, for instance, in, uh, I don't know if a lot of you have heard about some of the, some of the ideas around uh, AI at the moment. Of, of, there's a lot of, I don't know, buzz and excitement around the idea of, of creating artificial intelligence. And some people seem to be very optimistic that we're quite close to that. And I can't help but see that that's, that is alchemy, or at least the, the goal of alchemy, to, to free the god that's trapped in matter, to create life. I mean, it's, it, it's such a funny thing to see it's still, still living today, just in this strange and new technological form. And, and, and there are lots of people who are, who are quite invested in it and, and quite animated by it. And so we'll see where that goes, but it, it certainly is an archetypal idea that apparently is coming out of the Gnostics and bubbling up through the ages, through you know however many millennia. And now we can see traces of it in this fascination with the AI and how close we are to... And, and from there, I mean, if you listen to some of the people talk about it, like Nick Bostrom or, or, or I don't know, Sam Harris or some of these, these really smart people, uh, philosophers, uh, talking about how an AI could become a super intelligence that, you know, essentially with godlike powers. I mean, there, it's still, you can still see traces of it, this, this idea, which is just fascinating to me. Okay, so after talking a bit about Zosimos, there was a paragraph that I wanted to point out because it really emphasizes that 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 first point that that we talked about of 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 having one psyche spread out over the outer world, which is fascinating. So I'm going to read it. This short, sketchy historical survey has shown us that in late antiquity, the major part of what we call today the psyche was located outside the individual in the animated matter of the universe. It consisted of a multiplicity of colliding components, or of gods, star divinities, and demons, or of powers in the organs of the body, or in chemical substances. Jung has shown that what we now call the collective unconscious has never been something psychological. It has always been relegated to the outside cosmos, to the extra-psychic cosmic sphere. Man protected himself against it with religious symbols and rituals in order to avoid experiencing it within himself. Only today do we discover the collective unconscious in the area of inner psychic experience. Furthermore, in antiquity, the conscious ego of man was a helpless victim of different moods or divine influences. Only slowly did man develop an ethical, critical attitude towards these powers. Now that's something I, I find so interesting because it it really it gives this different perspective on on all these various rituals and and all these intense superstitions that people have and and these religious practices that have emerged in so many very different forms. 
you know, it's it's just it's such a fascinating idea to think that that people were experiencing these these real real which I will emphasize psychological forces instincts um, complexes beings divinities demons that like <laughs> you can you can call it whatever you want but these real something real in the environment that that was psychological that we that we now experience as within but but for a vast amount of our human history and probably even to some degree today it was experienced on the outside and that that is a fascinating thing and and how it's taken a long time to remove ourselves to to gain all these little pieces of ourselves and pull them back within us and it's not like something that that I I know when von franz and jung are talking about it it sounds like a very deliberate sort of thing but i'm i'm sure a lot of this is is an unconscious proce- uh, process and it's you know just slowly gaining uh, almost an integration it seems like over the ages and i mean i have uh, two examples that come to mind uh for instance you know i've i've I took a class on shamanism and I've listened to, you know, a lot of lectures about uh, the development of ayahuasca and DMT and that sort of stuff. And for certain tribes, for certain, I don't know, uh, people in, in South America, the way you get ayahuasca is I think you have to take a certain vine and then a certain other plant and one the plant acts as an inhibitor for certain psychoactive chemicals in the vine and then you brew it a certain way and you get a tea and so i think western researchers were asking these uh, indigenous people like how did you figure out to take this plant that's completely separate from this vine this separate species of plant and and out of all the species in the jungle how did you manage to pick that one and the vine in order to make this uh, psychoactive uh, brew this tea and what the response they got was well the plants told us (laughs) plants told us how to to which which vine to get and which which plant to mix with it in order to make this tea and and you know to our western thinking that's just that's just nonsense right that's that's silly you know <laughs> plants can't talk but but what's so great about jung is he he took this stuff seriously he took dreams seriously he took uh, the unconscious seriously the psyche seriously and what von franz is describing that this would be something that of an instance where perhaps in in the early days of of these shamanic practices that the individual was experiencing his psyche out in, in nature. And and she kind of alludes to that a little bit when talking about uh, Carlos Castaneda and, and Don Juan, that this form of active imagination, this form of, of interacting with one's psyche I suppose can be learned and as a practice to be done in in nature, at least in in this Don Juan example that she talks about in the chapter. The alchemists did it with chemistry and chemical experiments. 
And Jung had this this idea of active imagination where he would do it with a patient to try and get them to interact and learn from their unconscious in a uh, therapeutic, you know, counseling session, which, you know, I would love to learn how to do, although I don't. Um, but this idea of a, a natural, this sort of natural process happening through, um, you know, stretching back through the aeons, back into our, our prehistory of, of man interacting, almost living a dream, interacting with, with spirits and demons and fairies and all this stuff, as she mentions several times, which I think we'll get to in a little, bo- in a little while. Where did all these beings go? Where did all the, where did all the nymphs and spirits go? That were, you know, are, are you a, a ubiquitous factor in, in human culture? Ghosts and spirits and, and those things that we, we scoff and roll our eyes at, you know. It, it's such a fascinating reevaluation of, of something that, that we in the West, at least, through the development of science and, and you know, she, she has this kind of anti-science vibe, well, a little bit, but... I think what she's trying to do is is to reemphasize what's been lost. And science is great. I mean, she and, and Jung were scientific in their outlook, as you can tell. I mean, but what she's trying to do is trying to balance the equation a little bit because it's become so one-sided, our culture, as, as, as being the, this, uh, the scientific paradigm, the materialist paradigm. It, it's so it's so strong that it, it's it's out of balance with with what what has been lost. Where where's the psyche gone? Where have all these? Where's the magic gone? <laughs> it sounds so funny just to say it, but that's what she's talking about. All these all these crazy silly ideas that that we have thrown away so callously, you know, of divination, of of astrology. Of horoscopes, that sort of thing, alchemy, right? We thought it was just a bunch of crazy old, old medieval guys that were trying to make gold out of lead. But, but Jung took that stuff seriously as something psychological and and having a psychological reality. And he did that because he took the psyche seriously. He took dreams seriously because he saw the the change and the impact that that approach could have on his patients who were suffering. And by, by taking the psyche seriously, he was able to help a great many people. So uh, I, I almost forgot to talk about my second example of, of this sort of thing. Um, when I was in Peru, uh, it was fascinating to learn a little more about the Incan culture. We were going to Machu Picchu, we were in Cusco. There are lots of these old ruins and uh, amazing stone structures. Sacsayhuaman outside of Cusco, these massive cut stones, and you, you have to marvel at how they did it. But while I was there, they I forget who told me, or it, it might have been a guide. We might have been in, in Ollante Tambo, I think. Somewhere uh, along the way, a guide was was mentioning that there were these sacred sites kind of scattered on the roads and around the cities 
sa- uh, sacred sites of, of certain, it could be a pile of rocks or, or a certain uh, cliff face or something. Um, and I, I couldn't remember the name of it, so I had to look it up. And they were called wakas, H-U-A-C-A. And they were places where the Incans would have a, a certain interaction with the stones. At least that's what the guide had told me, that the ancient Incan people would go there and talk to the spirits and talk to the stones, and the stones would talk back. And that's, that's the exact same thing that we're talking about here. I'm just going to read a, a little definition that I got from the Encyclopedia Britannica just to, to try and flesh out this, this idea a little bit. Waka, sacredness or holiness. Ancient Inca and modern Quechua and Aymara religious concept that is variously used to refer to sacred ritual, the state of being after death, or any sacred object. The Spanish conquistador Pedro de Cieza de Leon believed that the word meant burial place. Waka also means spirits that either inhabit or actually are physical phenomena such as waterfalls, mountains, or man-made shrines. The aforementioned shrines, which are found throughout the Inca territory from Ecuador to Chile, may be as simple as stones piled up in a field, or as complex as stepped pyramids that were once topped with canopies and carved images. Okay, so that just gives you kind of a little taste of, of some of these ideas that surround this, what we're talking about, I suppose. Uh, it means sacredness it means spirits it means a burial place it's spirits associated with certain natural phenomena or man-made phenomena it's just this this idea in action which if we stick to the normal scientific western perspective we just have to write all that stuff off right that's just silly superstition or Maybe there's something there. Maybe it has something to do with the psyche. So uh, now, as we get to the middle of this chapter, we get to talk a little bit about Christianity. And there was a very interesting perspective, which I hadn't thought of before uh, reading this, which I, I really enjoyed. And that's this idea that uh, von Franz is, is describing this gradual reintegration of of these of the psyche on a on a vast historical s- scale you know that was out in nature and and then gradually starts to get pulled in through various uh, philosophies belief systems and and we get to christianity which she uh, identifies as a as a certain ethical progress that what Christianity allowed us to do was to have a great kind of leap forward in our ethics, I suppose. At least that's how she's laying it out. And what I thought was interesting is is the role that it played in this kind of great, uh, however you want to call it, this great <laughs> integration over time of, of of the psyche and bringing in all these psychological forces that were spread out on the landscape and the environment and, you know, people too, of course, in the outer world. And what she describes is that 
that Christ, she, she quotes this poet of saying that Christ managed to pull all these good, good spirits and beings and spiritual traditions that were out in nature that people experienced outside of themselves. For instance, like the co-opting of certain pagan rituals and festivals and that sort of things began, they, they got pulled in by Christ and they, uh, it's, it's kind of a fascinating image, which she, she uh, illustrates with the, the words of this poet, Ephraim Sirius, which is because the creatures were tired of carrying the prefigurations, the symbols of Christ's glory. Christ relieved them of their weight as he relieved the, way, uh, the womb who, which carried him. Or Christ clothed himself with the symbols he carried. She goes on to say that this relief of nature means a partial taking back of projections from outer nature. But what was left out in nature was all of the evil, all of the demonic, all of the bad spirits and that sort of thing. And that it kind of stayed there for a while. And, and nature and uh, the body and matter became, you know, something associated with sin, with, with evil. And it's kind of like Christ acted as this great magnet to pull in all the good from nature, and, and what was left was all the, the bad stuff, which is a fascinating idea. I mean, even just psychologically, what, what, what these symbols and, and what these tendencies and these trends, what they, they show about a, who we are and, and what we emerged out of. And, and, and certainly, I mean, that, that carried on into, I mean, she mentions the, the witch hunts of, of the 17th century and the birth of modern science, uh, the, you know, which obviously that's, that's the birth of this struggle between, you know, science and religion that right there. And and we can certainly see the see the um, shoots of that that have uh, emerged today. So I thought that was that was very very interesting and and certainly something that we're still dealing with. So she goes on to talk about how the fact that matter and the physical and the worldly was left out of of Christianity. It, it, it became something well rejected and and associated with evil and, and bad and and something which kind of came back with a, vig- a vengeance, so to speak. She mentions that there could have been a great a great I don't know cross fertilization I think is the word that she uses between the alchemists and 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 the church. But it, it kind of remained in this sort of limbo where it was neither, neither accepted nor re- rejected. And so one thing that, that kept that, kept the, the pollination from happening there between the two was this, the rise of this rational materialistic outlook, which von Franz traces back to the early sophists. In, in Greek philosophy, these skeptical sophists, where we get the word sophistry from, of, of always questioning and, and this kind of very uh, hard, dogmatic skepticism. 
and uh, the so she compares them with the Stoics who who recognize the previous Greek gods as psychological powers. The Sophists, with the birth of this early rationalism, dismiss them as pure illusion. So she kind of skips ahead a little bit after talking about the roots of, of this rationalism. But on the way, she, she mentioned something very interesting, and that is the, how it's kind of related to a sort of fear of the irrational, of, of that which is beyond our control, and how it's kind of apotropaic, which is a really cool word that I learned that means warding off evil. It's kind of like people who put uh, the evil eye up or, or say certain words to, to ward, off, ward off evil spirits to keep bad luck from happening. And, and she compares this, this rationalism, this sort of belief in only that which is physical and only that which is material as this sort of apotropaic character of, of well, if I just close my eyes, the ghosts aren't there, sort of thing, which we still have with us to some degree today. Although, you know, you can obviously take it too far in the other direction too, but, but it, it has this character of, of a hand-waving kind of, well, I can't explain that, so it's not real, sort of thing which you know, I even see in, in certain discussions about near-death experiences too, of, oh, it's just the brain hallucinating. That's, that's all. It's easy. That's, that's it. This sort of easy, oh, it's just an illusion caused by your brain, or oh, you're just an overactive imagination sort of thing, which to some degree is warranted, but there's also this this aspect of, of if you take the psyche to be real, then then that's something that, that should be taken seriously. And and so I, I thought her comparison there to it's based to some degree this rationalist approach, which was important at its time, of course. I mean, it's very easy to to go too far in one direction or too far in the other direction. I mean, it's very important. The, the birth of a, a secular, rational society, I mean, it's led to very great things. Also some not great things, but, but uh, she, that's something that I hadn't really thought of before, of how, how it, it, it does have this kind of fear aspect to it of, of the, something that is unexplainable, so is just thrown under the rug, so to speak, in this sort of... Um, manner, so I thought that was that was very interesting, and and so she goes on to to describe the development of of how we kind of got to where we're at today. She says because matter was no longer included in the divine symbol of totality, a compensatory materialism came into to being, a vengeance, so to speak, of the rejected mother archetype. And she makes a sort of distinction between uh, two different archetypes of uh, mother archetype and the father archetype, mother associated with matter and father with spirit. And that's, uh, I think there are a lot of <laughs> complicated reasons for that. It, just symbolically, that's kind of how it's emerged. But even the word matter is coming from the root mater or mother. 
So uh, she makes frequent reference to that. Um, and so, and then the father associated with, with abstractions and, and spirit, uh, and also this, this sort of rationalism, this, this scientific endeavor, which is, is disconnected from, from the body, from, from nature, from, from matter. It, it, um, you think of mathematics as something that, that doesn't, is, is kind of all up in one's head that isn't connected necessarily to, to the ground, so to speak. And, and so that, that is the other side of the coin of, of these two archetypes, which she mentions. And that's a very rough description. So like, for instance, that's how you get mother nature and, and father time, that sort of thing. But I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said about that and in a much more articulate manner than, than I can provide at this moment. But she then goes on to talk about some of the effects of, of this development that uh, what ends up happening and how people view the world and themselves in this, the birth of this scientific paradigm. And it's, it's very interesting because it, it you see a, a kind of uh, hardening of, of the science of science and religion at the same time. And, and she asks the question twice on this one page of what, what happened to the psyche? What happened to all those gods and demons where did they go? Uh, she says, but that world soul in which many god powers had become one, containing star gods, animal demons, where was it? So uh, people still, I guess, had <laughs> some belief in in possession by demons and witches and that sort of thing. But but earlier in, in, in our history, it was a, a vast kind of array of, of positive and neutral and negative sort of, uh, I don't know, spiritual beings that have vanished. Where did they go? Is this she asked many times. But, and she talks about how people tried to find where, where was our consciousness coming from? Where was it in our brain? Was, they couldn't find it anywhere. This was the beginning of, of you know, um, birth of, of medicine and surgery and that sort of thing and, and people trying to locate locate where where the soul was. It, it's it's reeks of this hard materialist, I don't know, the, uh, ideology which we still very much have today. And that's something that that I wanted to, to point out is is something that I see still present with us today very much so is, is this is how concrete both sides are. It's so funny. It's like there are, are very fundamentally religious people who who stake their whole the whole truth of their religion on it's actually historically happening of the the truth of of Noah, you know, actually saving every animal and in the ark and on uh, surviving the flood and that sort of thing. And on the other side, you know, you have the scientific people, the, the materialist types who are saying, obviously that's nonsense. And all we can believe in is what we can touch, <laughs> you know, in science, this hard, it, we are only our, our bodies and, and that's it. And they're both so incredibly concrete 
neither one gives any reality to to the psyche. There, there's neither one will believe in in the the in a psychological reality, and and that I think is a great loss and and causes so many issues where people are talking past each other because. The relig- uh, hardcore religious folks can't see the psychological reality of their religion. I mean, they feel it to some degree, but that's not what they stake it on. And then the scientific types aren't, aren't getting the whole point of religion, which has a psychological reality, which, you know, is, is the perfect example of that is a near-death experience and how profoundly that changes a person. And of course, it varies from person to person, and some people have a overtly a religious, uh, in a sort of dogmatic fashion, uh, an experience which portrays perhaps God or Jesus or something like that. But others are a little looser in in, in the imagery. But the profound meaning that's there is completely lost to the the you know hardcore materialist atheistic science side of the, the equation. And so this this concretism is is something which which both sides share. This materialism is is something that is is in common to both. Um, and I hope that that's something that we can start to loosen up a little bit by by talking about these sorts of things and 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 taking the psyche seriously, taking inner experience seriously. To recognize that it has an autonomy, which is a word I tend to use a lot, especially when talking about near-death experiences. But I think it's so important to recognize the autonomy of the psyche. And I think that that very much carries over to the discussion around NDEs. And, you know, as someone who is trying to, to approach them in a way, it left me no choice but to take take this point of view, <laughs> you know, because everyone sees something different. I haven't read two NDEs that are exactly similar, and all that I've read. Now there, you know, there are components that are similar. There are motifs and patterns, and you know, seeing the. Uh, uh, great light or going through a tunnel or having a life review, these things, there, there's a great similarities there and those are interesting to point out. But nobody sees the exact same thing. And so what what is someone supposed to do with that? I could come at it from a scientific angle and say, well, these are all just uh, hallucinations of a dying brain and you get the out-of-body experience from a certain release of a certain, uh, I don't know, <laughs> a uh, neurotransmitter in a certain area of the brain and, and we can reproduce that and that sort of thing. But that doesn't, it doesn't explain why it's the most profound thing that people experience. You know, <laughs> the, it doesn't explain the meaning and it doesn't explain the even the ethical content of most near death experiences how they have this very wisdom based kind of meaning that is that is shared and and transmitted and then 
at the same time, I, so I could come at it from that angle, and but it wouldn't be very interesting to talk about them. And then I could also come at it from a, a religious angle and say, and only maybe only pick near-death experiences that show Christ. And then say, oh, well, obviously this means that uh, this is proof of Christ. And if you don't, you aren't a Christian, then you're going to hell, that sort of thing, which, you know, I do see out there from time to time. And it kind of irks me because both of these are, are dead ends. And so the only way that I have left to, to take the phenomena seriously is to take the psyche seriously and how it manifests to us because nobody dreams the, the exact same dream. Everyone has different imagery and different symbolic content that the dream expresses itself in and that seems to be the same case with near-death experiences to some degree and that does not trivialize the near-death experience but I think it emphasizes how profound and how important something that we overlook truly is. And that thing that we overlook is the psyche, is our dreams. And I certainly believe that perhaps some of the most important moments in somebody's life could be in dreams. The, the most profound changes and, and transformative experiences that, that end up making the most, the most change, the most difference in someone's life could, be, could happen in a dream. And that's something that we wake up and we wave our hands and say, oh, it was just a dream. It didn't, you know, didn't matter. And, you know, I get it. I get why parents tend to tell their children that when they're freaked out because... They had some nightmare or something, and you know one has to go about one's day. You still have to live in the world, but that attitude, that dismissive attitude, is something which has serious, serious effects in our our society for for lack of meaning. You know, I think we're we're above it all. It's so it's so arrogant. And that's, that's something I, I hope that we can start to gradually start to take seriously. And so how do you start to take it seriously? Well, you can have a near-death experience, but I'd say most of us probably uh, haven't had that, for better or worse. I mean, that's it's still somewhat rare. Um but perhaps you have a very strange synchronicity happen in your, your dream. It's you dream of something and then it shows up in real life. Or perhaps there's a very, very meaningful uh, coincidence or series of, of coincidences that starts to pile up to where you can't not notice it. <laughs> Uh, instead of you know looking for patterns or something, but something that that kind of slaps you in the face and says, "Look at me." Well, that can be an entry point into starting to take the psyche seriously, taking the spirit seriously, so to speak. And that's something that that's an aspect of this chapter that that 
von Franz gets into. She mentions how how Jung kind of laid a, a foundation to start to heal this rift between between psyche and matter or spirit and matter. And one of the ways he did that was to take seriously these moments of synchronicity. How he started to notice with his patients when they were in an extremely, I don't know, overcome emotionally or there was something profound happening in their lives that these moments, these flashes of, of, of meaningful coincidence would start to happen in the outer world. And von Franz mentions the, these, very interesting that I, I hadn't heard this before, but these kind of two categories of, of these sort of synchronicities. One that is associated with the coming to consciousness, so to speak, of, of uh, the growth of the personality, of, of becoming of development, of becoming closer to perhaps God uh, or in the Jungian um, God image of, of the self, that archetype. Or it, it could also be connected with the... <laughs> Uh, which she mentions as demons or the, or the play of, of autonomous complexes which which plague the the individual and, and at the beginning of a uh, psychotic episode they have these two very different times where they tend to constellate these these synchronicities and meaningful coincidences in in the first category that I mentioned I will point out that uh, many, uh, near-death experiencers tend to ex have synchronicities uh, surrounding their coming back from their experience, and that would that would I guess make sense to some degree. And and what's very fascinating is that uh, you know von Franz uh, says that perhaps these demonic uh, synchronicities, these devils' miracles, as she uh, puts in the Christian sense, the Christian terminology. I, that was something I didn't know that I guess there was a certain line of thought in Christianity that the devil could perform miracles as well. As well. Um, that perhaps they, there is a meaning there that could be seen but is, is being ignored by, by the individual. That perhaps it's some repressed issue or, or complex that is trying to get one's attention and, and is manifesting in this sort of destructive manner which leads the individual down and, and to God knows what, uh, which she describes schizoid uh, psychotic episodes. And I'll just point out here that, again, I had a, a dream where an old woman... <laughs> I know I've said this a million times, but an old woman told me if I wanted to understand near-death experiences that I should go to an insane asylum and understand schizophrenia. And, and that really has, has pushed me down this path of reading Jung and, and about psychology in general and, and, and psychoanalysis. And, and Jung, at least from what I've read, seems... To, to walk that, that edge so, so carefully between science and religion. And von Franz 
mentions that he, his work kind of allows this, this bridge to emerge to, that we can start to bring these two back together in, in a cleaner way, as she says. And one way that he did that was his investigation of, of synchronicity. Now, uh, von Franz gets into a little bit of the technical side of, of synchronicity and, and talking about how Jung classi- classified it as a causal orderedness, as he classified synchronicity as a special case of a causal orderedness. And what that means is, is he identified it with certain phenomena in nature that had no cause. So, uh, one of the examples he used of was uh, a radioactive decay at a certain rate, or the, I guess, the um, <laughs> movement of energy quanta. Um, another one is certain numerical and natural number, uh, um, I don't know, qualities or, or, or just so facts of the fact that Six is the only number that is the sum of its divisors, and and the uh, you can multiply them together and get the same thing as if you add them together. So these are certain. Why why is there this order in nature? These these certain pockets that pop up, and there's there's no reason. They they're just so. That's how they are. And so what Jung thought synchronicity was was a. Um, kind of sporadic and arbitrary uh, popping up of this a-causal orderedness in nature that there's no there was no particular pattern to it but but sometimes these events would tend to occur especially when someone uh, had perhaps some some uh, archetypal excitement in them or, or there was some some major meaningful moment occurring in someone's life, that these sort of things would pop up, and that as a kind of a-causal orderness, they could be thought of as moments of creation in time. And von Franz kind of distinguishes or or, or differentiate, or no, wait, that's not the right word. Uh, yeah, I guess distinguishes this from the, uh, the ideas of, of certain of the scientists that she mentioned that, uh, that God this certain idea that God could not change his creation. I guess coming from Descartes on to even, even Einstein saying that God does not play with, with dice. But she, she sets, sets that against synchronicity, which, which she and Jung both thought were moments of creation where, where the divine could still perhaps, and I know that's a po- poetic way of speaking, but the divine could still manifest in these in that throughout time that they were identified with miracles and and so one one of the ways that that Jung and then von Franz uh, took up the, the one of the ways that you could perhaps investigate synchronicity was through the ways that our ancestors had and that was through certain oracle methods and divination techniques such as the I Ching or or you know certain uh, a geomancy which I, I think has to do with counting certain rocks or pebbles or something and getting getting certain numbers from that and then making a prediction or a certain 
horoscope or, or a fortune based on that. And so von Franz has done a lot of research with divination and, and oracles and that sort of thing as a way of investigating this, this random and, and profound kind of pairing of the inner and outer worlds that pops up. And, and so, you know, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating. And at least for me, you know, I often say that the, a near-death experience or, or an inner spiritual experience is, is kind of only true for an individual. And that I, I, at least personally, I don't want to base my belief off of anyone else's inner experience, but my own. That's what I want to use as the foundation of, of what I live from and what I, what I base my beliefs on. And I, as a result, I take my dreams and my inner experiences seriously. And I have had a moment of, of synchronicity that was so strangely trivial and, and so profound at the same time of dreaming of someone and then running into them in real life the next, well, in a matter of hours. And so, and I live in a big city too. It's not like I'm in, in some commune or, or some small town or something. So when, if you take that seriously, then you, you can start to start to get in some of, some of these very weird places of, of, the idea of the unus mundus, which which von Franz talks about a little bit here, of perhaps there's a uh, underlying unity between the inner and outer world, and unus mundus means one world, and this was a a, a concept that Jung had had adapted from uh, medieval alchemy and med- medieval philosophy. And it, it's a very interesting idea. And that's how, you, if you take that sort of thing seriously, if you have a moment where, where the rules of causality are broken for whatever reason, then, then you can start to dip your toe into this very strange type of way of living, of seeing that the, the, the unity between the inside and the outside, or the outside and the inside. And so she gets to this story of the rainmaker in Khao uh, Chao. And when I first read this, and I, I, had, I think read it in a different Jungian book a year or two ago, and I didn't get it, you know? It's like, okay, this guy, this guy meditates and he's a rainmaker and the country's in doubt. And then after he brings himself into balance that it rains. It's like, well, what is that? I, that doesn't make any sense. But after having had a synchronistic experience, I suppose, and for others, I mean, that could be almost, it could manifest itself in, in, in many different ways, such as a near-death experience or something like that. And then seeing how the inner and outer worlds kind of interact in a certain way, whether it's the after effects of a NDE where 
certain strange effects or certain meaningful coincidences. I mean, there are kind of different ways that this can can manifest. But to take that idea seriously, it, it, that is how that is how the, this <laughs> this rainmaker supposedly saved the the country. That he was humble enough and and wise enough i suppose to to take his his inner disharmony or the, his inner i don't know uh, feeling of being out of dow which is how he describes it but uh there's there's kind of an identity between the distress in the community and how he felt inside and somehow if once he managed to bring himself back into order that brought the outside back into order too. And I know this is all, this is bonkers, isn't it? The, the idea that, that perhaps our inner state could, could affect the outside and vice versa. I mean, obviously we, we quite readily believe in the, in the, the latter there that the outside world affects us all the time of, of, of our feelings. But, but if if one has a, a synchronistic experience that that provides that that I don't know uh, that glimpse into this moment of 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 there being unity between the inside and outside that you start to w- look at the world in a very different way and it's something that I I'm still struggling with to not only wrap my head around but be able to articulate but I I'm starting I I understand to some degree why why von Franz and why Jung thought this story was so important because it illustrates that idea of, of perhaps there is a unity between, you know, at the deepest level between the psyche and the world, psyche and matter. They, they can interact in certain ways and that perhaps how we approach both, both inside and outside, if, if we do it in a way that is, um, earnest and, and humble and and wanting to grow and, and become, I don't know, uh, become ourselves, become more of what we are, that, that perhaps that one can get a, a certain glimpse into that and to start to, to notice that maybe. It's just fascinating. And then she goes on to talk about how in, in certain divinatory practices and certain um, oracle practices that uh, at least Jung thought that the idea of number and natural number was very deeply associated with this phenomena, with the psyche and, and how it manifests in matter. And, and that number could be a bridge between the inner and outer world. And I've mentioned before when I think we've talked about this, and I've I've mentioned her uh, von Franz's book Number and Time, which which I'm still trying to digest. Um, this idea that that you know number can obviously describe the outer world, the objective scientific world, you know, marvelously in our physics and uh, mathematical descriptions of of, of chemistry and biology and physics the the world around us it it's it's the language of of nature so to speak 
And and what Jung thought, as as von Franz describes a little bit in in this chapter, is that perhaps since it is it's so primordial and so so you know deep down that it could also describe the psyche and and act as a bridge between these two worlds. And there was a great quote that kind of illustrated that. Let me see if I can find it here. And the quote is, he said, if you strip an object of everything, its color, its size, its consistency, what remains is its how manyness, its number. And so that it's a very, very basic and primordial type of thing. And and Jung defined number as as an archetype of order that has become conscious. And and so this might be a certain area of investigation which which um, von Franz took up. And I loved the the little story that she shared about the <laughs> Chinese view of number, how how it showing this this psychological side of numbers of, of quality of the the generals, the eleven generals who are trying to decide whether to attack or retreat. And so they took a vote and eight wanted to attack and three wanted to retreat. And so they retreated, which is, as she mentions, it, it's so funny that it goes against all of our usual intuitions on, on, on how numbers work, right? But the Chinese view, according to, to von Franz, was that the quality of the number had more importance than its quantity, and so she identifies this as an area where more research can be done. And, and then towards the end, she shares a very personal story of, of uh, how perhaps this psychological and, and feminine side could be incorporated into science. One thing she mentions is that perhaps physicists and Jungian psychologists could kind of train each other in their respective disciplines but towards the end she starts to talk about this example of, of this young man who was trying to do a land survey from statistics from all this abstraction from um, mathematics probabilities all this spirit all this kind of um, very masculine and and quantitative sort of side and what he ended up doing was also getting this other side this balancing it out with how the people felt, going and talking to the people, taking pictures, learning the mythology of the land, this, uh, this other side, this more uh, feminine feeling side. And I know those are very kind of broad, overarching uh, concepts, but that's just symbolically how she expresses it. And, and by having both approaches he had great success when, and not only going getting his his paper done but also going on to plan uh, plan the land for the entire uh, I, I think it's like a state the, the cantor of uri i'm not exactly sure how the swiss system set up but uh, also having a, a, a synchronicity so to speak of 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 having a, a certain dream of a uh, the black madonna talking to him and von Franz goes and get, goes on to describe how the Black Madonna told him to go to a certain place, 
meet with a certain person, Mr. B, and then uh, I guess good things came from that. And von Franz identifies the Black Madonna as an, an earth mother, <laughs> an earth goddess, so to speak, at least symbolically, and, and how in this process of, of having to plan the land and make uh, you know, certain contingencies of, of for good times and bad times that, that he was, whatever this plan he was developing, developing got the, the seal of approval from, from an earth mother, earth mother type of figure, which is just very funny. But um, it, it is a very personal sort of anecdote, which is uh, a very refreshing sort of way to end this kind of, uh, very technical and and um, heady sort of chapter that has all these different ideas in it, and she ends it with this great little story of, of perhaps a way that that we can balance out this this kind of dichotomy we have going on in this very one sided sort of culture that we have uh, a way of uh, involving the observer into the experiment to some degree. And I know that's, that's very vague and not very helpful, but, but perhaps, you know, bringing these two sides of the equation closer together. And, you know, I think it is good to emphasize that although von Franz at certain moments in this chapter seems very anti-science, anti, I don't know, not progress, but like uh, a materialistic those things also have their their positives and it's very very tempting to to jump from one side to the other and and be anti-science anti-western culture anti like all that stuff but really what you want is a is a balance between these two sides of the ledger to to have the best of both because if you take either one in in too far a direction, whether that's the spirituality of you know uh, the inside, you get cults and Jonestown and and God knows what sort of horror you can unleash on, on that side, and you go too far on the other side, materialistic, seeing human beings as as statistics, and then you you know. Uh, who knows w- what kind of carnage that you can bring into the world. And, and we've had plenty of examples of that in the 20th century. So, so where does that leave us? Uh, I hope that at least this has been interesting. I know it's, it's kind of a pretty, pretty, you know, significant deviation from what we usually do, but I think it very much has to do with our outlook towards towards inner experience, the spirit, spirituality, the NDE. And I hope that we can start to take it seriously. And and I think that if we do, then I think we will start to be more in balance and more in harmony between between the inside and the outside. So thank you very much for listening. If you would like to reach out to me, uh, you can send me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. 
you can check out my website, which doesn't have a whole lot on it, but you can check it out, samreadsneardeathexperiences.com. You can uh, check out the Facebook page, and we're on Spotify, on YouTube, all sorts of different places. If you enjoyed uh, the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use, because that really helps. And yeah, I hope you you got something out of this, and, and we will return to our usually scheduled broadcasting um, here in the next few episodes. We'll get back to some NDEs. So, hope this was a fun little side trail to take. But uh, now, as ever, we will end with a quote, although this one is not on death, but is significant nonetheless. <laughs> so I guess it kind of ties in with NDEs to some degree, and this is coming towards the end of the book in a chapter called Meaning and Order, uh, here in the same book from von Franz. And the reason it kind of, all of this to some degree, ties in with, with NDEs is because there is an autonomous factor which structures and organizes an, an NDE for an individual that it has certain symbols and images that it uses to express itself. It might be a great light. It might be in a, a re- certain religious figure. It might be in, in all sorts of different, uh, you know, a, a garden or, or what have you, a, a tunnel. All these different things are presumably organized and and curated and and expressed by something and that's something we cannot know what it is unless perhaps you've had an experience and had a direct experience of it but in and of itself we cannot know what it is metaphysically it is it's this autonomous factor which you know i i think is probably fair to to compare to God, I suppose, but but what it is in itself, we cannot know. And so this quote um, is going to come from from Jung talking about what what this factor is, and then he's going to, um, or or von Franz rather, is going to add in this quote from the uh, Tao Te Ching, uh, which is the very famous Chinese philosophical work by Lao Tzu. Okay, so, Jung says quite rightly that what, quote, that factor which appears to us as meaning may be in itself, we have no possibility of knowing, end quote. The Chinese equivalent of cosmic meaning is their concept of Tao, quote, incommensurable, impalpable, yet latent in it are forms, impalpable, incommensurable, yet within it are entities. Shadowy it is, and dim. 